Well, this morning we're setting out to explore the medium-sized but vital letter of Paul to the church at Thessalonica, uh, the first of two that he wrote to them. Now, the history of the church at Thessalonica is recorded for us in the reading we had earlier from Acts 17. There we discovered that on Paul's first missionary tour, he was led to this important town in the first century world and that there in that town the gospel was preached and believed and the church was born. That's not to suggest that all was rosy and remained that way, rather the opposite happened. The church came into existence despite severe opposition from the Jews, which saw Paul being run out of town not too long after the church was born. So the church at Thessalonica was a young church and being in the young church in the first century had all kinds of issues and growing pains to have to deal with. On that subject of growing pains, I have this memory of being much younger in my growing years and telling mum how my legs just hurt. Don't worry about it, she said. They're just growing pains. I guess she must have been right because I'm still here and my legs still work. And yet it was only earlier this year that we found out that growing pains are real. When Sandra's great-nephew confirmed that his growing pains were so bad that he had to give up sport for many months. You may or may not have had the first-hand experience of those kinds of growing pains or the kind that parents all over the world feel often acutely, the kind of growing pains that you go through when your children are at that stage that causes you to wonder, will they ever learn? Will they ever grow up? Will they ever reach maturity? These sorts of pains stay with you for a while and persist even once grandchildren come along. It was these kinds of pains, these sort of growing pains, that the Apostle Paul felt in relation to those who had become believers in Thessalonica. They had been drawn from various backgrounds, Greek, Jews, rich, poor, male, female and at this stage the church was just in its infancy, not under the care of Paul directly but the care of pastors that he had sent to nurture and to counsel and to teach these believers. And because Paul regarded these believers as his children and he regarded himself as their spiritual father, Paul was concerned for their welfare. They were growing in a hostile environment. Especially, Paul was concerned that the strong persecution that the Jews continued to put upon them would unsettle them and turn them away from Christ. So to find out what was happening, he sent Timothy Timothy to them to bring a report back on the progress of the church And then on receiving Timothy's report, he wrote this letter to them, this first of his letter, of his letters to the church at Thessalonica. It's written about 20 years 
after Jesus died and rose again and went to heaven. So it's one of the earliest letters of the New Testament, one of the few that are closest to the life and the ministry of Jesus soon after the the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Only James, the letter of James, vies with the letter to the Thessalonians as being among the earliest letters of the New Testament. And this letter of all of Paul's letters is also his first letter in the New Testament with an interesting twist. Every chapter in this letter, every, in fact, the final verse of every chapter in this letter, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5, every final verse of every chapter has a reference to the second coming of Christ. Now that shouldn't really surprise us, considering these believers lived just 20 years after Jesus left the earth and promised to return. In response to that, Paul's letter has this strong emphasis on the hope that is held out to us in view of his coming. So it's not too hard at all to pin down this rolling theme that's found throughout the letter. That's not to say that the letter is just about the second coming of Christ. It's not just about future hope. But it is to say that everything Paul urged his readers to do was written in the light of this anticipated return of Jesus. That is to say, the return of Jesus colours the whole letter which we'll be tackling under the subheading, as you'll see on the screen, a faith that functions. Well, what can we say about chapter 1? Well, I'm taking the key word of the first 10 verses as the word model. Not the type that walk up and down the catwalk, but the type that is held held out to us to observe and to copy. For example, in that context of the phrase role model, which is something that footballers and other sportsmen and women are often not always role models. And the phrase model behaviour, which refers to the way your children and mine behave in public. You'll be familiar with those phrases, so try this one. The Thessalonians were model Christians. That is to say, they set a high standard in every aspect of the Christian life. They were model believers. You couldn't say that about all of Paul's churches. You couldn't say that about the Corinthians. They received lots of sharp rebukes from Paul. Even the believers at Philippi We're having trouble with unity and humility. But not so the Thessalonians. Paul could hold them up to all the churches that he pastored and say, you should be like them, these Thessalonians. There's what a church ought to look like. In fact, in verse 7, he described them in those terms as a model church for others to imitate. Verse 2 reveals 
that Paul felt he had every reason to continually thank God for them because in the midst of persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ, what things became evident in their lives? Faith, hope and love and joy all characterised their witness under trial. Here are a group of believers of whom the apostle could boast. I wonder if he could say the same of us. I wonder what he would say. So let's find out what makes a model church and what makes them a model for us. First, they modelled a genuine faith in Christ. A genuine faith in Christ. In verses 1 to 5, we find some of the things that were so impressive about their faith. For one thing, they had a faith that worked. And while the scriptures are crystal clear that we are saved by grace through faith, they are also crystal clear in teaching that a saving faith will always result in good deeds. The origin of that faith we have noted already in Acts 17. But the evidence of that faith, the Apostle notes here, by noting the fruit of that faith, a love that laboured. Now let this sign of true faith not be lost upon you. The very evidence that their faith was true and genuine is seen in the love that was shed among them and became so apparent. It's not always easy. It's not a natural thing to love others, even in the body of Christ. Sometimes it's just hard work. And so where love is an outcome that catches the apostles' praise, we should know that this love must be real and therefore the faith that is the origin of the love is also real. Then we find that this genuine faith and love were fueled by a hope that endured. When I was at school and we had to do athletics, maybe Alice and Jeanette have to do this still, we have to do running races. Which was the most popular? What do you think? The 100 metre or the cross country? Of course, the 100 metre. Although you'd be breathless, it was all over in 15 seconds, whereas the cross country could take, I don't know, two, three hours. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a cross country. It calls for endurance. It calls for a hope that continues to endure. And in this case, this hope of the Thessalonians, and we'll hear more about it in the third point, gave these believers that endurance through many kinds of trials. And this meant that they clung to the gospel with tenacity. Now there's more in the first five verses but I'll come back to them when we come to the latter half of chapter 2 in a few weeks' time. Secondly, from verses 6 to 8, I want you to note that these believers modelled a strong commitment to Christ, a strong commitment to Christ. It was in spite of severe suffering that they clung to the message of the gospel. Acts 17 told us that the church was formed through days of persecution 
And now here Paul could literally boast of the fact that wherever he went through Macedonia and Achaia, he could tell God's people not only how these Thessalonians had been truly converted, but also that in turning to Christ and embracing him, they had embraced what he had to embrace. The hatred, hostility of the world. And in doing so, became imitators of the sufferings of Christ and of the apostles for his sake. We're not told exactly what form of persecution took at Thessalonica. But we are told is that these believers stood up under such trials to set an example to other believers and to the whole world about how to respond in difficult times. They had turned away from the idols of their day, indicating the genuineness of their conversion, to embrace the gospel and to embrace suffering for Christ, which indicates the genuineness of their commitment. It was not as though these believers believed in order to make it easier for themselves. Rather, in choosing Christ, they chose the harder option. That which meant they were outcast from a world they were once so much a part of. It's refreshing to hear of commitment like that, isn't it? Commitment which mirrors churches unlike ours, that is to say, churches that aren't being persecuted. Stories we hear from all around the world where the church continues to be persecuted are just the opposite of what we might expect. Instead of driving people away from Christ, persecution is driving people to Christ and helping them remain committed to Christ and sorting out believers who are genuine and who are not. And in the end, it builds up those who are true and provides them with an even greater hope and a stronger commitment. Thirdly, from verses 9 to 10, these Thessalonians modelled a living hope in Christ. A living hope in Christ. Waiting can be hard and it can have good and bad effects. But with these believers who held strongly to the truth that Jesus was returning for them and coming soon, this waiting added a dimension to their faith. Note the progression that Paul is described here about them. They turned from error, they turned to the truth, then they turned to a future hope. There are three turnings. Or you could express it this way. They turned from their past to a present experience of salvation to a future hope of all that God had promised for them. In fact, all three tenses are here implied. The past tense, they turned. The present tense, to serve the living and true God. And the future tense, to wait for his son. The first was a work of grace through faith. The second, a response of obedience through love. The third, a patient waiting inspired by hope. But think further on these verses 9 and 10. 
the text says here that they turn to God from idols. It doesn't say they turn from idols to God, but from God to idols. Uh, sorry, to God from idols. To God from idols. It was not that they were cleaned up first and then they believed. It was not that there was a natural progression from worshipping idols to worshipping God, as if by somehow worshipping idols they turned to the true God. Rather, the picture is in the midst of their idolatry, as idol worshippers, they were converted and they turned away, they repented and those idols were forsaken. The tense of the verb Paul uses to indicate their turning to God from idolatry is also significant. They not only did this together and collectively as a group, but they did it once as a single completed action. Now from this two things become apparent. One is that a complete response to the gospel is a combination of all three tenses. The gospel is the message of a salvation that has been completed in the past, is to be enjoyed and lived out in the present, but has a future component that's to be waited for. And just as believers have turned away from their past to embrace the gospel message in the present, so also by doing so, believers inherit a hope for the future that is part and parcel of the gospel, not just the return of Christ, but the completion of everything that God has done as part of his plan of salvation, including bringing to perfection what he has in mind for you and for all of creation. Now perhaps it might dawn upon you why it's so dangerous to let the future component of the gospel slip. Because if you do, you lose the perspective believers have of a future hope. And doesn't the New Testament tell us a lot about our future hope? Doesn't Romans 8 tell us that we were saved in hope and other parts of the New Testament, as in the book of Revelation, chapters 20, 21, 22, spell out for us how wonderful that hope is, how real? The other thing we learn here is the correct way to balance the future with the present. These believers didn't get so caught up with the return of Jesus that they became useless on earth. Rather, they were excited with what lay ahead. They did not let the future overturn their daily responsibilities. This is what believers of old had to do as they waited the first coming of the Messiah. Men like Simeon, women like Anna, they only had the word of God to guide them. And they were greatly blessed by believing the promises of God and eagerly anticipating the day when the Messiah would come. Well, isn't that us? Aren't we doing the same? With the promises of God to guide us? Eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come again? 
It didn't matter that it was a long time in coming. They continued to walk with God with their eye on what was ahead. Well, we all have models, some good, some bad. But if you want a model for your faith and for your Christian life, then you could hardly do better than the model the Thessalonians provide in faith, obedience and hope. In the reality and genuineness of their faith, in the steadfastness through trial and the obvious joy they had because of the hope they knew that Jesus was coming for them. They knew that no matter how bad things appeared, how difficult their circumstances were, they could still be joyful. The great evangelist D.L. Moody told this story about a Christian woman who was always bright and cheerful and optimistic, even though she was an invalid. She was confined to her room because of an illness and lived in an apartment in an old building in downtown Chicago on the fifth floor, the top floor of an old apartment building. The building was run down. It wasn't a good side of town. One day a friend decided to visit this bed-stricken woman and in doing so decided to bring another friend with her, a wealthy woman. So these ladies made their way up the stairs on this dilapidated old building and started up the stairs. On reaching the second floor, the wealthy woman said to her friend, this is a really difficult walk. What a dark and filthy place this is. Her friend replied, it's better higher up. So they made their way and continued up to the third floor. The remark from the wealthy woman was, things are even worse up here. And again, her friend replied, it's better higher up. Finally, they reached the top floor, the fifth floor, quite out of breath, and opened the woman's door, the invalid woman's door, to find her in bed, her face radiant with joy. She couldn't get up to greet them, but as they looked around the room, they saw it was clean but very bare, just a little vase of flowers in the corner and the sirens and other city noises coming in the window from the street below. And the wealthy woman, in spite of herself, trying to keep composure, looked at this woman in bed and said, it must be very difficult for you to live in such circumstances. And the woman in bed didn't miss a beat. She said, my hope is not in my circumstances. It's better higher up. Such was her hope. Such was her expectation. Not that the circumstances of life in this experience would always be favourable, but that which is to come is better. And she could and she would endure anything because her eye was on the goal that it's better higher up. Do you know the hymn of Robert Roberts? He must be Welsh, a name like that. I'll read it to you. Far off I see the goal. O Saviour, guide me. 
I feel my strength is small. Be thou beside me. With vision ever clear, with love that conquers fear and grace to persevere, O Lord, provide me. Whenever thy ways seem strange, go thou before me. And lest my heart should change, O Lord, watch over me. But should my faith prevail and I through blindness fail, O let thy grace prevail and still restore me. Should earthly pleasures wane and joy forsake me and lonely hours of pain at length, O take me, my hand in thine hold fast till sorrow be overpast and gentle death at last, for heaven awake me. There with the ransomed throng who praise forever the love that made them strong to serve forever, I too would seek thy face, thy finished work retrace and magnify thy grace, redeemed forever. Here was a model church with an eye on the goal and that fact enabled them to be effective in the present. Let's just summarise everything we've covered. In verses 1 to 3, they're energetic. In verses 4 to 5, they're elect. In verse 7, they're exemplary. In verse 8, they're enthusiastic. In verse 9 and 10, they're expectant. Here was a church looking back with gratitude, looking at the present with endurance, looking at the future with hope. Here was a church who gave Paul every reason to boast about them wherever he went. Here was a church that knew the joy of salvation and they knew it because their eyes were fixed on Jesus. And you know, the same will be so for us. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we can say, because it's better higher up, where our heavenly high priest is seated at the right hand of God, because it's better higher up there, I can endure with joy for his sake here. May such be the case with us. And may these things be evident, things that we take for granted, faith, hope and love characteristics that mark us as people who belong to the Lord Jesus and like these believers were, so may we also be waiting patiently for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your word. We thank you that it's written for our instruction. It's there for our blessing It's there for our encouragement and we pray that this might encourage us to be the kind of church we ought to be, which means we need to be the kind of believers we ought to be, thinking thankfulness, thankful thoughts about the past, gratitude for what you've done, which inspires us to continue on in the present enduring all that we must, but also looking ahead to what's to come, the future, what it means, what that holds out to us 
as far off we see the goal. So help us to keep our eyes fixed upon it. These things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.